and welcome to Challenging Behaviours, the podcast that challenges behaviours. Yours, mine, who's everyone's. Oh wow! Towards disability, where in society? Uh, we one thing I haven't really realised: we never say who we are. <laughs> I'm Jack. That's Tom. Yes, I'm Tom. He's At Tom. I'm Jack. One, two, three. Uh, also known as not Jack and Jack. Jack, yeah. Um, What's your Twitter handle, Jack? Sorry? What's At Wasps Kill Bears. What's yours? At Rapid Rhino123. Um, what can you expect? 123. What do you get? What, 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 what do you get on your Twitter feed? I don't know. I'm what do I get? Of... Yeah, you know, what sort of tweets would I expect if I was to check it out? Oh, my one. <laughs> uh, well, the last one I do, I don't do it. I'm more of a reader than a tweeter. I was going to describe your account as a MasterChef fan account. Yeah, meaning I've done one tweet that's referenced yeah. it. It cracked me up. But it's like one of the first ones I've done that wasn't to do with my fundraising thing. Uh, Here he goes again, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Lock yourselves in. <laughs> uh, no. All right. Well, today we were very lucky, and yeah. we got to talk to. Chris Hatton. Chris Statton, as they say. Chris Statton. Statman Chris, who unfortunately I have discovered I wasn't the person to invent that name for. Yeah. Bop, bop, bada, do. Oh, my God. Um, but we had a great conversation about all things COVID and learning difficulties. And yeah, and a bit of leader in there, too. A bit of kind of um, the wider public perception and yeah. inclusivity. And it was great fun. And Chris was someone that we've wanted to have on wanted to have on for since, since the be- since the beginning of time yeah um so i forgot it. this in the last two episodes and i can't believe i forgot it enjoy or don't do what you want Yeah, that's about right. Well, we don't actually edit, so if we do four hours, people are getting the yeah, full four hours. The whole four hours. <laughs> Nobody needs that. Nobody needs that. None really? of us need that. Nobody else needs that. Yeah, we've never really edited any of ours. No, I don't think the only thing I've edited in our recent ones is there's just you know some awkward Zoom silences, which I just got rid of them, and that's that's yeah. about it. Um, so, Chris, would you like to like, introduce yourself? I've already said your name. Spoiler, it's Chris. <laughs> Hello, um, I'm Chris Hatton. Um, I'm an academic, currently working at Lancaster University, soon to move to Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, and I stare at spreadsheets a lot um, to do with people with learning disabilities, mainly. That's what we wanted to talk to you about, to be fair, spreadsheets. So um, yeah. that is good to know. Starting, yeah, so should... have you had any good spreadsheets recently? Because I've seen on your Twitter you've been looking at some specific stats around COVID and learning disability. And I wondered if there was a specific, like, particular spreadsheet that you wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> Tom, that was great. That was that was super. <laughs> Are there any particular spreadsheets you're interested in? Mm. Um, yeah, well, I guess I've been ever since I guess kind of COVID hoved into view. Um, I've been badgering about 
trying to get in timely information about the deaths of people with learning disabilities during COVID. Um, one, because I was very worried um, about how bad that picture could be. And um, two, really, I hope that we try and get some information to be able to do something to try and stop people dying. Um, so I've been looking at spreadsheets as they've come out um, around the deaths of people with learning disabilities due to COVID-19 and due to other things as well um, during this period. So there's a few sources of information. Some of it's coming from NHS England about people dying in hospitals. Some of it's come from the LEADER programme, which is a national programme reviewing the deaths of people with learning disabilities and about who's been notified as dying of COVID and other causes to them. And there's one bit of information from the Care Quality Commission, which was an analysis of who'd been dying in, who would, people with learning disabilities have been dying, I guess, mainly in care homes compared to this time last year. So there's a few different sources of information, none of which really match up together, and none of which have been um, analysed in the way to kind of maximum use, I guess. But that's what we've got at the moment. And it would only be fair to say, I think, that. England has more information about the deaths of people with learning disabilities than pretty much anywhere else, even though it's not mm. good enough. Okay. I didn't know it had more than anywhere else. That's, um, that's quite interesting. Do you think, in terms of accessing the information, because you said that the bits of information don't really add up, is that something that is sort of a COVID info exclusive, or is that sort of tend to be the case when you're looking at deaf information, that there's lots of different bits that are hard to get or, or don't add up and it's all kind of just difficult to wade through. Yeah, I think generally the picture is that there's lots of different bits of information and also um, not all of that information is released or used, so it can be very hard to get hold of. Um, but at the moment, I guess, because we need information quickly, that's putting um, an extra pressure on. So it's probably even less coherent than it might be at the moment. Um, just on the COVID, for people that haven't read, because I read some of your Twitter. You're going to say, for people who haven't heard of that. <laughs> yeah. Just about people COVID. For those who haven't heard of COVID. Pandemic <laughs> at the moment. Um, I've read some of the stuff on Twitter. Um, what were the overall sort of takeaway points from the, from the data that you thought were key? I think there's a few things that we know so far. One is that... Um, there was a general peak in England and the UK um, of people dying from COVID-19 in April, and that was the same for people with learning disabilities. Um, now, currently, it looks like pretty much nobody with learning disabilities week by week is dying in England, although obviously we're fearful of a second spike. I think the second thing is proportionally, it looks like people with learning disabilities were more likely to be dying of COVID-19 than other people. Um, potentially at its peak, kind of four times maybe more likely to die than, than other people. Well, that's, um, that's reduced at the moment. And I think the third thing which came from the Care Quality Commission information is that people, the peak age of people with learning disabilities dying of COVID is younger than it is for other people. So for the general population, you know, the risk of dying from COVID-19 um, really increases as you get sort of into the really much older age groups. And for people with learning disabilities, I mean, people with learning disabilities already die 20 years younger than other people for reasons that are much more likely to be avoidable. Um, and so people 
it looks like people with learning disabilities, the kind of the peak age of dying from COVID-19 is younger than other people. So I think those are three things which we, which are pretty clear so far. Do you think in terms of the, um, the social factors that will play into this, uh, not undermining the fact that it's, as you say, that already the life expectancy gap is an issue um, that will be impacted by these social factors, but that should be changed. Um, is it things like how poorly care homes are dealt with and the, the fact that more people with learning difficulties are likely to be in care homes at a younger age than elderly people who would go in? Um, and also things like if you rely on a care worker and things like that, you've got more outside people coming in and out during a lockdown. Is it sort of, in theory, those kind of factors that might be contributing to it? Or is it, is it wider than that? I'm just thinking from a social standpoint. Yeah, it could well be. I guess the frustrating thing is that we could know some of that, but we don't. So the information could be there to be analysed, but we don't know that yet. So people, for example, haven't broken down the stuff around care homes into different age groups or different kind of people, I guess different groups of people using care homes. I mean there aren't as many people with learning disabilities in care homes as there are older people and people with learning disabilities tend to be in the smaller care homes so the ones where it looks like there's been a really increased risk of death from COVID-19 has been really big places so kind of 50 people upwards. Um, so people with learning disabilities are less likely to be in those kinds of places, um, which I think is helpful. But you're right, we don't know about, as you say, people leaving in kind of group settings. We don't know exactly about um, people who are supporting them. Um, you know, people are on contracts where they're kind of rushing around, seeing lots of different people. Um, so obviously that's, that's an infection risk. Um, paying conditions for lots of support workers are really uh, terrible. So many support workers might feel that they can't actually take time off um, if they've potentially got COVID symptoms themselves. Um, so that um, runs the risk of uh, spreading things further. Um, so I think all, though, all those pl uh, play into it. I think government guidance hasn't been brilliant and it hasn't been um, usefully targeted in ways that people with learning disabilities and those around them can use. So, you know, guidance comes out and then there's lots of oh what about people with learning disabilities what about autistic people and there might be some changes and then sometime later the easy read comes out just in time for the guidance to change so i think it's really hard for people to know what they should be doing what's safe um, i think a lot of people are reporting um, some social care support basically being withdrawn so people are kind of having to fall back on their own resources a lot more and i think that's really um, stressful, particularly when it's really hard to find basic stuff that would help. So things like personal protective equipment, for example, it's been really hard for people to come by. Um, it's really hard to do things like get your food shopping in a way that's safe. Um, so all of those kinds of things, I suspect, would um, add up to a to a higher risk. And I mean, pe people with learning disabilities, you know, many people have the kind of health conditions that put you at greater risk of COVID and you're more likely to have them to start having those health conditions at earlier ages and you're less likely to have them well treated. So I think it, it all adds up to a grim picture, I'm afraid. That's one of the things I noticed during the lockdown. I think Jack, you've mentioned as well before, is that the whole kind of time anything came out, there was this just what about 
certain like people with learning difficulties what about disabled people things like that and I think like Francis Ryan on Twitter has been a really big advocate for the, for people who are shielding and just this yeah. complete ignorance towards the guidelines how and how they can be interpreted by people who need to shield and I think like even the stuff with shopping like you mentioned like um Tesco opening an hour early for vulnerable people in sort of inverted commas that wasn't actually a government guideline that was just them doing that out of kind of them realizing that was a problem so it's real it does point to this kind of lack of any sense from the government in this that must contribute to these these outcomes yeah it's interesting because in um in australia for example they've had this very um grandiosely named what's it called operational and management plan for people with disability and it came too late and it's not working brilliantly but it's a lot sooner than here where basically disabled people were involved in a group that put together a comprehensive plan about how to support disabled people through COVID-19. It's not working brilliantly, but it's much better than the complete vacuum that we have here. Yeah, it's um, even that as well, that sort of, it's not working brilliantly, but it's better than nothing is kind of almost. Yeah. Just that it's quite, it's good that we, we found that quite a lot on the podcast when we talk about things, it just becomes this kind of, well, I guess, I guess it's something, I guess it's a beginning, which is quite, especially in a pandemic where it's so kind of inconsistent with who it completely levels COVID and who it kind of doesn't affect too much. It is, it is a scary time. And I think that's one of the things I get from Twitter when you see people who are shielding tweet is just that it's easy to forget that the fact that I can go to the shops in a mask without being too worried about what would happen. And even if I got it, not being too, too worried that it would sort of put me on a ventilator, like you can't really gauge that fear. So then when these guidelines come through and they're just so inconsistent, it must be horrifying. Yeah. And think, I mean, things like, you know, at the start, people with learning disabilities were one of the, in the guidance, they were a clinically vulnerable group, everybody, you know, in one stroke of the pen as a and as an example of a chronic neurological condition lovely um you know people everybody was clinically vulnerable and then in the next edition of the guidance which came out on a sunday they suddenly weren't mentioned anymore mm. and it's just these yeah. kind of huge things that make a massive difference to people's lives and how they think about um their, their lives right now and what they can do they just changed at the stroke of a pen with no no attempt to really think through what that means for people and to communicate that with people it, it gives off sort of major kind of afterthought like feelings it feels like they they come up with something and then they think oh wait we haven't addressed that so we'll just yeah. chuck something and in probably because people have been like hey where are we yeah like, oh, let's just chuck something in uh make sure and then literally forget about it the next time they do it and then it has to happen again um uh, yeah, that, I mean, that that's my impression, I guess. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot of that guidance has been quite medically driven. Um, and, you know, medics think, you know, even public health medics think about things in a, in a medics kind of way. Um, and in the absence of, I guess, a structured way to make sure that people's voices are heard, in those circles at the right times and that's what comes out and it's exactly as you said jack is that kind of people saying what about and they go oh yeah you know so I think it's quite a lot a lot of that going on so the guidance comes out and then the other people who is who's supposed to be producing the easy read 
only see the guidance at the same time as it comes out with everybody else. So they're always scrambling and behind the curve. In terms of, um, just because you mentioned easy read and, and accessibility with these stats and sort of with COVID, but also the, the leader stuff as well. Um, obviously you're an academic, you've got a fair amount of experience in sort of unpacking these documents. Yeah, you've done your yeah. time. <laughs> Do you ever feel like... Um, it shows, look, <laughs> it shows. Do you ever feel like Sorry, Curry. a little bit... That's sort great of, for a podcast, isn't it? But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> we can we can always do sort of audio descriptions. Um, oh, we're constantly doing visual <laughs> visual references, aren't we? All the time. Do you feel like it shows kind of that if you you're there unpacking it on Twitter and it's great for all of us to be able to sort of look at it, but there is this sort of element of how must it feel for people who don't have the academic background who the data specifically is talking about in some cases, who just must struggle so much to access what it actually says. Like that. I don't know, is it, I mean, do they release an easier version of sort of these sorts of COVID death statistics and things like that? Or is that sort of, again, an afterthought? I mean, the, the only agency that has to give them credit is when the Care Quality Commission put out, and theirs was a sort of one-off thing, but when they put out the stuff that they did, they did do an easier read version, which they released at the same time. Um, the agency in charge of, the other COVID stuff, which comes out every week, is uh, NHS England. And they, when they first started producing the stuff in hospitals, they put out a press release, um, but nothing was easy read. Um, the leader stuff on COVID-19 deaths, they didn't even press release. So when it came out, nobody necessarily knew it was there. And it was only by word of mouth that people heard, heard about that at all. So they're just producing the information every week on spreadsheets and that's it. So there is no attempt to communicate any of it, let alone easy read, accessible, explainable versions. So it does feel real. they've been dragged to it kicking and screaming. Um, but yeah, but no, there's, there's nothing. And it's really, you know, I mean, I've, I've spoken to a number of people um, with loan disabilities who are understandably terrified. You know, this stuff comes out and, you know, okay, I might tweet stuff or other people and it's pretty grim stuff. And it's like, well, how do you deal with that? You know, yeah. what do you make of that in your, in your life? I think, it's, I think it's, it's terrifying. Many people are really anxious to go out and do anything. And in the absence of, well, really good information, but also... I guess the, the means to have properly informed conversations with people about what it might mean for you and what you want to do about it. I think it's really frightening. Yeah. Um, so obviously uh, during lockdown and the whole pando, uh, I've still been working. So interacting, you know, mainly online um, with um, young people and adults that I work with. And there've been so many times where they ask questions and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, um, you know, and a lot of it, a lot of the fear they have, you know, is just from kind of in a media kind of way, uh, it's like just reading headlines and things like that. So, you know, if a headline is kind of putting the whole story into like one kind of line, reading the kind of article itself would be even more confusing. Um, yeah. So if we can't kind of make sense of it, how how do we relay it on it's yeah it's very difficult um and yeah i've seen yeah. Uh, you know i've seen firsthand like the the yeah. kind of fear 
and worry that's experienced and the amount of um I can tell you like quite a lot of the people I work with have said like have just assumed oh it's never going away this is what it's going to be like forever and they're just so scared that they're just got to stay well, at home forever they now might have, they might be more sensible than than many people when it yeah comes to that. they might be right <laughs> uh yeah i mean it's i mean it's so difficult as well because like you say you just get these sort of blanket headlines but even when it comes to kind of information about people who learned this was in COVID 19 we don't have the information which we would need to be able to have a conversation with people about what it means for you you know so you know there are some people who are maybe shielding or magically not shielding anymore the magic non-shielding date suddenly mm -hmm. it's okay to go out everything's the same as it was yesterday but different and um, there's been lots of that in the guidance um but that would help people come to i guess an appraisal of their own risk and for them to make that decision about what they want to do with that i think at, at the moment it's, it's it's also blanket that it's you haven't got enough information i think to have that proper conversation with people mm -hmm. yeah and i think um as you say with this grouping of lots of people into one sort of vulnerable group and all these people are very different um the v word <laughs> yeah the um inverted commas again you've got to point it out on a podcast because you guys can see the, <laughs> like, uh, the people listening um but it does as you say create this sort of fear culture because if you're if you're suddenly told that you're kind of more at risk than everyone else even if you might not actually be until you're kind of explicitly told you're not you're going to be really worried about going outside and even if you're not a sort of explicit person who's been told to shield but you've been told to kind of watch out like i know um some Stay people alert. yeah but some people with diabetes are kind of not yeah. shielders but they're more at risk than yeah. others and things like that and that it is just a massive oversight kind of in the government's approach has been to kind of almost ignore some people who need more sort of of the guidance to them because they've been told they're vulnerable like if you're told you're not vulnerable the guidance is important and you can take it on but it shouldn't be sort of directed at what you need to do because you've been told you're not yeah. as much of a risk as certain other people but they seem to just be telling kind of everyone that it's fine to do whatever you want really especially if you need an eye test is what i took from it i don't know <laughs> it's kind of been my only takeaway <laughs> satire yeah. from tom yeah. tom there Lacking. all right Ian his lot <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yes. I mean, do you ever reach kind of um, just a point of sort of? I would, I think, I would find it too upsetting to just constantly be unpacking these stats and just mm -hmm. feel like so defeated. I don't, I don't really know how you do it, Chris. To be honest, uh, it is upsetting. The, the bigger, the bigger worries that they become abstracting and don't get upset enough. Actually, okay. So it's kind of, or you know, you kind of your eyes glaze over with numbers but yeah people and, and it's people dying and that's yeah it is it is a, a upsetting but it's rightly so not enough people are being upset i think that's you, i've seen that quite a few times on twitter and you also i think you have to check yourself sometimes when you are reading because it is this that they're, they're behind every single number there is a person and that's yeah. especially and almost as the numbers get bigger it becomes more and more difficult to see that but actually yeah. it, you need to see it more and more as the numbers get bigger because it's more and more people and that is quite i hadn't yeah i mean i don't stare at the spreadsheets every single day myself so it's not something that i come across all the time but even when i see 
stats about anything on Twitter, yeah. um, even just COVID deaths in general and things. It's just remembering yeah. that that is, and every one of those people has a family and it goes on yeah. and friends and sort of, and that sort of spiraling of people that have been affected by one out of however many. Yes, I think I think at one point there was um, a couple of politicians saying, uh, "Yes, I mourn every single death." Yeah, and I, I just looked, you know, and I looked at—I can't remember how—but I looked at, given how many people have died altogether of COVID nineteen in England, if you had a minute silence for every person, it would be months and months and months yeah. that you were silent without any sleep, and you just think. You cannot be mourning every single person's death. What would that mean? You know, the, the scale of this, of this thing, of the impact it's had on people and those around. You know, the ways in which people have been separated when they've been ill and when they've died. The way that people haven't been able to attend funerals. Um, you know, that's. You know, I mean, I'm I'm lucky it hasn't happened to anybody in my immediate family. Um, but it must just be terrible. You know, I've got sort of, I've got parents who are kind of getting towards 90 and you're kind of thinking, mm, you know, you need to be careful and you're kind of having a chat and you're being positive and but it's just really, it's really hard. No, yeah, fully. It's yeah, imagine the fear you must have as well. Say you're a, you know, you have someone with a learning disability in your family and, yes. you know, the amount of fear you must have around that say you know say you are someone who does kind of um see these statistics and has a good comprehension of them that must be like horrifying that's the i um, can't even yeah. imagine it like that comes off as well again sometimes of this kind of as uh, these things are so important but kind of at what point do you have to sort of take time if it's if it's close to you to not go too far into them where you're just going to be so upset by them. And I think that's such a difficult balance to find because they are just, and this is going sort of even outside of COVID, like um, yeah. other leader stuff where you're just yeah. like, it is yeah. harrowing. And it, I mean, just as a parent, you must be kind of just terrified, really. Hmm. I don't know if you've had any experience of speaking to parents about things like that, Chris. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 you you see people, you know, people on Twitter that the leaders just are saying, you know, here's my son, he's eleven. Looking at this, he's going to last another forty years, maybe. Crushing, just really, you know, really crushing. As you say, how you how you absorb that blow, um, and keep on day to day for the best. It's you know I'm I'm in awe really I'm in awe of people who manage that day day by day. We um there was one because we did a episode a bit about um, life expectancy didn't we Jack I can't remember when but I just remember us having quite a chat about it. It would have been quite a few years ago. But I remember when they came out that's how far ago it was. <laughs> one of the tweets was that someone was saying like um I went to pick my son up from school and saw him playing with all his mates but. And they were just having a great time, but also he's expected to live 20 years less than all of them. Yeah. And that, that kind of almost, the fact that there is no underlying health condition that is that comes with a learning difficulty just means that this kind of, 
in a bit there is no way to actually rationally in any way comprehend why that is the case there is no rational explanation for why this is the case but it is the case and that obviously doesn't mean it's going to happen to everyone but it does mean that something is going on and that must just be yeah just a huge sort of thing you must always think about i guess if you're a parent and that it just kind of lost lost the words talking about mm. it yeah and i think i mean you mentioned earlier about kind of the, the kind of social issues that are so important and i think a real a real barrier is that it's such a it's not one thing that you can point at and say we'll just fix that fix that and it'll be sorted it's so many different things and the more that you kind of burrow down you can see this in the leader report you know where the real is a kind of saying for most you know most cases oh yeah the care was fine for this person that died it's like and yet people die 20 years younger yeah. you know the the kind of the, the kind of layers that that you have have to go through and there's there's something kind of deeply rotten there's something deeply institutionally discriminatory you know in that which might not be about you know um overt discrimination but the overall function of health services but also you know from education through to support through to housing through to poverty through through to to, to employment you know the, the odds are stacked against you i mean i, th I think so many people learn disabilities are really resilient actually in the face yeah. of all that um you mentioned uh career and employment uh just then and i was reading about that on twitter just earlier about this kind of lack of um seeing learning disabled careers as careers and just instead seeing it as sort of getting a part-time job or a saturday job or sort of mm. quite minimum it's a minimal. day service or a therapy yeah yeah um and i just think there is just from um kind of what you've described then as well it, there, there's an intersectionality in things like class and as well which will contribute to these factors and kind of if you're expecting people with learning difficulties to only be able to achieve kind of part-time jobs they're obviously not going to have the same wealth capacity as people who have a full-time paid job and that is another factor that can affect your life expectancy in a lot of areas can be your income and things like that so it just ends up like you say it is a bit of a wormhole of like socially in these institutions where you just kind of start tumbling and tumbling and really seeing all these faults kind of everywhere you look and it's just kind of at least the way I always see it is that it's just this consistency of people just being let down in kind of all areas of their lives but again like you said on a slightly positive note and similar to our, um, the book that like Sabah was writing that we well, was written that we were speaking to her about on the one that came out today, today. yeah um, oh has it oh brilliant oh must have listened to that that's a fabulous book made possible edited by Sabah Salman read it read it read it yeah it's a great, great book. Um, but on a slight positive note, you say about the resilience is that it makes the success stories so much more impressive mm. as well, because it's like people have really fought and fought and they've come out. But again, it's it's almost like people never mention that. They shouldn't have to have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they shouldn't have to have fought to get to that point. So it's all, it is just all horrifying. And like you say, that's yeah. an institutional word, like the institutional ableism, I think is quite a good term. Maybe it's all horrifying. Yeah. Could be this episode's title. Just all how it's just um, all horrifying. I am, I am the voice. I am the voice of statistical doom wherever I go. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
But I mean, it, Statman yeah, I mean, Chris, what I've referred to you as in the past. Statman Chris. Statman, Statman. I'm a Statman. <laughs> don't expect me to scout in a Statman, <laughs> please. Just don't, don't go there. I don't. I don't know if Tom actually got the reference when I made it. Though. I, know, I know what you mean. I know. I know. Yeah, I know Scatman John. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but come, I mean, coming back to employment again. I mean, it's a worry that we're going to be entering into really difficult economic times, and disabled people generally um, tend to be the people at the raw end mm-hmm. of that. Um, and I mean, there's it's interesting. There's an article about. People learn disabilities, you know, and the jobs they're doing during COVID-19. It's great that people are doing great stuff in different places. But you read through the article and it's like, actually, they don't have a job at the moment because they're shielding. Or actually, they don't have a job at the moment because they're sharing a place with someone else who is shielding. You know, and, and so, you know, employment is really precarious for, for, for people. Um, so my worry is that employment rates aren't going to be increasing any time soon and then i mean when you combine that to plug another great book um and another podcast guest uh francis ryan's book talks about the sort of impact of cuts and when you combine the this lack of employment with the horrible and completely desolate benefit system that we have in this country like it just it paints this picture of people sort of who are going to be unable to basically live on a basic, especially during a pandemic time, where, as you say, it's also hard to get your food and things like that. It just all paints this further picture of kind of as much as there could be an actual, a real second spike, but sort of a secondary second spike that's not caused by COVID as an illness, but caused by kind of the social impact of COVID, mm. which again, no one seems to really talk about is that there will be heavy social fallout from this pandemic and disabled people will be heavily affected by that. Yeah, well, you've had Francis Ryan as well, another great book. Fantastic. You've been, you've been podcasting with stars. What have you got me on for? I'm a book to plug about many else. If you've got any uh, academic papers you want to plug, we can sort of... <laughs> we can... <laughs> really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, really. Um, but yeah, and, and I guess my, one of the, the words I have about... One of the words about COVID-19 is... Um, I guess I've all, I've been trying for a while to to push this line. There's this whole thing about in social care about risk, social care risk and protection that weights things against anybody going out and doing anything because it's risky. Um, you know, don't go out, don't have fun. You know, don't um, enjoy yourself, don't get a job. It's all risky. You might cross a road and get run over by a bus. So it's best to stay at home and not do anything. And I guess from a public health point of view, actually that kind of protection is pretty much the worst thing you can do in terms of looking at people's health. You know, the worst, the worst things, if you look at um, how people learn disabilities died before COVID, is, you know, sitting at home, being isolated, not physically doing anything, um, you know, um, not seeing people, those kinds of things. Um, and one of the things about COVID is that actually the lockdown message is you are safer at home, you are safe to stay inside and not do anything. And I'm worried that that's now good, you know, will be seen as much more of a, of a trade-off and people will be discouraged from actually appraising the risks of having a fulfilling life um, outside their doors. And as you say, Tom, there's going to be, um, 
real worries about people's mental health, people's sense of isolation, people's physical health, and also things like we don't know yet what the impact of uh, GPs changing their services, and certainly most of it being online. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for people? Do people find that better or worse? And your health checks suddenly stopping. Um, you know, when will they, they be coming back? You know, other kinds of services that people rely on, like postural care or um, access to, to getting wheelchairs fitted. Um, that kind of stuff has been paused to protect the NHS. But actually, the, the many, many of the things the NHS has done um, to prepare itself for a spike have mean a withdrawal of health services from people with learning disabilities and what the consequences of that are in the you know, not too distant future worry me. Mm. Sorry, gloom again. It's all <laughs> um, in terms of the, as being from sort of a more activist side of your work, um, I'm just interested in what you think about the no, overall... It's, 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 yeah, it's not a label I claim for myself, activist. Well, I, I would say, um, I would say, from my view, I would see you as an activist in the same way that I would see kind of any of us and many of the people we've had on the podcast as being ad advocates and ad activists in some shape or form. But I'm just interested in what you think from your work about the public opinion outside of the learning disability community. And I would include sort of anyone associated with it as well, not just people with learning disabilities themselves um, mm -hmm. towards this. Because I'm just what you said then about people not going outside and things like that reminds me of I did a training when I um, worked at the same place Jack works and I remember them talking it was just a health and it was safeguarding training and they were talking about specifically one example of safeguarding with regards to learning difficulties and they um they mentioned that they had sort of people from our charity in the uh, in the room and one man put his hand up and he said he was a bit older he was quite a bit older than any of us and he said i don't know why they've changed the system when i was younger they used to put them all in the same building and that meant that no one could do anything to them but they were safe kind of and basically just described sort of the sort of textbook kind of asylum setup essentially and i remember being so sort of taken aback by that but also remembering no one apart from the people who worked at the charity that i worked for noticing that that was a tool very inappropriate to say and sort of so backwards so i'm just wondering in terms of your covid stuff and the public opinion on covid and the way it's been dealt with whether you feel like that there is kind of a there would be a public outcry of this stuff was more well published or you think people would just kind of think well of course learning so people are dying that's what happens mm. well i guess that's i mean a lot of people have written about how the vulnerable word kind of leads people to that yeah. and you still in the early the early age of COVID, the, early, the early phase of COVID-19, underlying health conditions being the sort of, you know, it's like, oh, X number of people have died, but they all had underlying health conditions, as if the, the kind of, the subtext is, so that's all right, kind yeah. of, isn't it? So I think, I think a lot of that is still around. I think there's a real worry about, if you look at how some of kind of the bigger lights in the care home industry are responding, and um, so their, you know, their message is, um, oh, we've got a lot of vacancies. <laughs> yeah, why is that? Um, and, you know, we weren't supported properly, which they weren't in terms of protecting people. Um, so they're saying, so we need, 
more help to help fill those vacancies in our larger care homes. Um, so one, you know, a negative path that it could go down is actually that the care home industry wants to retain its size and local authorities push more people into them because it's kind of administratively convenient, I guess. And, you know, and they could spin a line about protection. Um, so you end up with a more institutionalised system than we have now, I guess, is one worry. The positive way it could go is actually realising that putting a lot of people together in the same place is a really bad idea on safety grounds, let alone any other grounds. And so you would hope that um, local authorities and others would actually look to a more kind of radical solutions, I guess, that move people away from living in large groups and actually support people in ways that are more personal to people, in ways that are more led by people, um, and in ways that um, make sure that people are properly part of their communities. There's some interesting survey stuff about with disabled people generally that the ONS did, and they were showing that, you know, they're asked questions like, um, how much have you been helped out by your neighbours during COVID versus how much have you helped your neighbours? And disabled people were as likely to be helping neighbours as to be helped by neighbours, mm -hmm. just like anyone else. Um, so trying to make sure that, that disabled people can be part of communities and help and contribute, which people want to do, I think, you know, there could be that more positive way forward, which I think you can see as more cost effective if you want to use those terms. Um, I mean, although there isn't nearly enough money going towards supporting people, a lot of it is wasted on things that are bad for people. Uh, I mean, inpatient units being the most obvious example. Um, so I think there are, there are ways in which you can use that more broadly in terms of what public opinion is. Um, the, the battle is on right now, isn't it, I think, about how, um, yeah, how people's lives are going to be framed and seen and whether we retreat to, you know, large colonies, um, you know, in the countryside, fresh air, all of that kind of um, rhetoric, or whether we can actually push through to something different, and I hope it's the second of those. Hmm. That was what I was um, going to bring up as well, was that kind of classic thing that I'm sure we've all heard people say or read, read in um, newspapers, this kind of idea that we, we don't want to go back to how things were before because we've learned that we can do our job from home and we can do X and whatever. And we've really struggled spending these four months at home, but we've earned this right to change the system the way the system is but once again that again just comes to me as being this kind of exclusively middle class move and that actually lots of people have either been been at home before the pandemic for a number of reasons like you say where they've, they've not been able to go out or secondly just aren't included in this group that are going to be sort of liberated by this pandemic yeah. experience and i'm just interested again in whether that will uh, whether the people like in the who write for the Guardian as well as other newspapers who are kind of advocating for this are advocating for it for everyone or just kind of a certain class and I think that would be an interesting thing to watch but also again potentially quite worrying and scary for a lot of people. Yeah but I mean I'm, one of the upsides I think is that a lot of people um, with learning disabilities 
have kind of discovered and got to grips with digital stuff. Um, and it's great. So I've been involved in kind of a number of Zoom meetings with lots of uh, lots of self-advocates who are generally more savvy about Zoom, how Zoom works than a lot of the other people on the call. Um, and so there could be a flourishing of stuff which people find difficult. So in terms of kind of, for, for example, connecting self-advocacy groups across large distances, you can see that being a really positive move that people are actually in contact a lot more and it doesn't mean that people will never want to meet up and have that kind of whole meeting face-to-face experience but people can get a lot more done and feel much more connected with each other so i guess my hope is some of that might be useful in kind of re rebuilding i don't know if it's rebuilding but kind of building again um a national self-advocacy movement that starts to have real drive and power one thing we've always said about these statistics and generally the kind of experiences of people learning difficulties that is is that if it could reach enough people somehow that they they are so scandalous that people would be horrified that, uh, that it needs to break through in a certain way and it's just how does how do you get that to happen and i do i i i i kind of flick back and forth between thinking would people even really be that upset by it if they didn't have a connection or actually no there's no way you can't be and yeah. um, i'm just interested in as someone who's a stat man as a as, as jack coined whether you if you have an opinion on that do you think if it could if it was on the front page of every newspaper and sort of sky news bbc news all the news was just kind of reading it all out the every news. day all, all the news, news. <laughs> all the was um was reading out every day and really hammering home how awful um some of these statistics are whether you think it would really cause a national outrage that would see a shift. But it's, yeah, I mean, sorry, go on. I was going to say, like, well, when we, you know, were, re, you know, talking a lot about, um, you know, the conditions in ATUs and those kinds of things, those are the kinds of things you think would create, you know, like a national outrage. And, you know, we tried our best to spread out, you know, spread the word about it as much as possible, but still I, there was little change. So yeah, I'd really be interested to what you, what you think, Chris. I don't know. I think there's a, there's a lot more um, media coverage than there used to be. Um, and I think a large part of that is down to the justice for LB campaign, actually, because I think, I think, out of that came, I think there are a group of kind of journalists and people across different, you know, TV, radio, print media, um, who have a commitment and who actively look to find ways to get stories on the media rather than kind of having to be sold them. Um, so I think that's helpful. I think there's a sort of, so there's a kind of steady drip feed and there has been through COVID-19, but it's not all the news every day. Um, I think the out, again, as we were talking earlier, I think whether the outrage generated feeds into a sense of vulnerable people, so whether it's actually always helpful. So it might be, oh, well, you know, these these poor people, blah, 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 blah. Um, And that doesn't necessarily lead to a sense of things can be different. 
Um, so I think one, one of the things about linking the outrage to is a sense of giving people a sense of, if we did this, it will be different. So it's like, this is shit, um, but we can do this and then things will be better. You know, not necessarily all encompassingly better in a magic way, but things would materially improve for people if, if we did that. And I think if, unless you, maybe unless you kind of know someone, um, it's harder to think of what you're going to do with that information. You know, you're going to sign a petition, well, you might do, you're going to give some money to somebody or whatever. But actually, again, and maybe COVID might help with this, you want people to be, um, I guess, wanting to spend time hanging out with people. I know this is something that's come up on your podcast time and time again, the value of people with learning disabilities and other people just having spaces to just hang out and be with each other from early childhood all the way through life and finding you know, ways and spaces for people to do that rather than shutting people off or kind of putting up barriers. And I think fun, fundamentally that's where it has to, to start really, is that you know, spending time together, hanging out, realizing that you can have a laugh together. Um, it's that kind of connection I think that, that really matters. We've yeah we've um sort of that's something we, I think even in the first episode onwards we just like always we to come back to. We just probably say it every episode, don't we? It's always the yeah. conclusion we always come to. It's like um, it's engagement and the inclusivity and realizing and and people being able to attribute people they know to things they're reading and kind of yeah. being able to recognize that the these statistics about people dying early and things that that is the person that you were hanging out with and had a great time with and, yeah. and is as much of a person as anyone else. And therefore that this is horrific and wrong. And I think that's without having lived experiences of hanging out with people with learning difficulties or any disability in um, any of the cases, it just, I think I can almost see that in people I know who don't have that where you, it is easier to distance yourself from the stats because you just don't know anyone and you don't, it doesn't hit. I don't think it would hit as hard for you if you hadn't, if you don't have that lived experience, as you say. So it is, yeah. we always come back to that, just advo advocating for that. <laughs> so, Yeah. Oh, uh, my door just knocked. So, Tom, hold the fort. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost Jack. Um, I was wondering, in terms of your experience of being an academic on disability, uh, or learning disability, um, is that how, in, in terms of the academic world, this is coming more from just the fact that I've, I'm at uni myself currently. Um, do you think the academic world is welcoming to things about this learning disability or do you think it's quite a battle to get it out there and published? Um, I think it depends. I think there's a kind of a little kind of um, learning disability academic world, but it's quite small and scattered. Um, so I, th I think within you know within that I think people are generally pretty supportive of each of each other, um, and that's really helpful. I think what it what it doesn't have is um, a discipline. So you know, so in academia, you know, are you a sociologist or a psychologist or a public health person? And I think work with people with learning disabilities, except for, well, I say except for disability studies, but actually maybe even within disability studies. It feels like quite marginal. So 
um, when me and me and colleagues kind of were doing a lot of work and trying to get that into the public health domain, um, because you know issues of people dying much younger are uh, fundamental public health issues, um, and trying to get the public health world to take that on board and to understand it and appreciate and to recognise that people with learning disabilities are an important group. That's that's been really difficult and it remains being difficult. I mean, there are parts of the public health world whose view is kind of quite eugenic, um, whose view is, you know, we are, we need to reduce burdens on society and how do we do that, people? Um, so so it's it can feel like a struggle, but I think that feels to me anyway, and it might be because I'm in a sort of very privileged position, um, that there is a community of people um, and we can all turn to each other for, for kind of help and help and support and stuff. But it does feel kind of marginal within most academic contexts, I think. I was going to say that because um, I don't do uh, uh, health studies and social sort of ex exactly that area, those areas, but I do do uh, sociology and politics. And I've been, I've just finished second year and it's, it's surprising how it's just never come up in any of the kind of modules and that we did one on the on the welfare state where i incorporated it into an essay i wrote because of my own experiences and things so i i was interested in it and i knew it was relevant but overall it's just so sort of almost sort of ignored in the in the general scheme of my course where we do cover lots of minority groups and sort of uh groups of people who are it's by the state kind of excluded for a number of reasons but it just disability and learning difficulties just doesn't seem to ever be something that we ever even get on a, on a single slide in a lecture sort of for five minutes even and that that is something that i do i mean hopefully third year will change that and i'll, I'll come out of third saying oh they were saving they were saving it till the saving end on. <laughs> yeah, best to last but oh, it's, yes. uh, it surprises me just from because it, it is so relevant in politics and in sociology actually a lot of the time and you can apply it and even kind of I know I've had this conversation with my mum before like a lot of social theory is really interesting when you look at it from a lens of learning difficulty and things like that because it, it shifts the parameters and things like that but they just it just never comes up in that way which to me seems bizarre but that's why I was interested in your experiences as a learning disability academic um, mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same in public health, you know, when, when, even when people are funkily talking about intersectionality, disability is not one of the dimensions at which they look. And that even on Twitter, sometimes you see that kind of push for certain movements to be intersectional, be it Extinction Rebellion or, or Black Lives Matter more recently. And again, when they list the sort of things you need to be intersectional with, it doesn't always include disability, which yeah. to me seems bizarre because all of these are really important. Yeah. But the the omission of one is 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 quite bizarre, especially when you're trying to show that you're being very inclusive. That yeah. it's almost okay to omit one, this one thing because it's still not as important as the rest of these, which is bizarre to me. Yeah, and you, I think you find you know most people who you know do post things on their social media, not even talking about particularly activists, just people in general. You know, when it came to uh, Black Lives Matter, everyone was, you know, posting things and things like that. Um, if there's been any kind of, you know, intrusion on, you know, LGBTQ rights, people are keen to post. Like, you can scroll for your Facebook feed, your Instagram feed, you might see people like posting stuff, 
never, never see anything about disability rights at all, unless it's me or Tom, really. <laughs> my personal need. I'm not saying in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I found um, the one time that I did see it, and I was I found this quite uncomfortable. But I don't know what you guys think, which is why I'm gonna sort of throw it into the um, into the podcast ring. Uh, was that I mentioned Extinction Rebellion because I've got quite a few people my age who are quite heavily involved, and they do really good stuff obviously climate wise and the they're very big on especially xr youth is very big on being intersectional but the only time i've ever seen disability kind of mentioned was when the police took their sort of ramps which was great that they had ramps at their thing at their protest site but it was the only time i'd seen it and it was kind of cameras in the faces of these two people in wheelchairs because they could no longer protest because of the lack of ramps and i remember sort of feeling like that you're there is a secondary reason you're showing this and it's not mm. just because it's not just because they can't access the site it's because it looks bad and the person in the wheelchair unable to protest sort of sat there looking sad really hammers home your point and i don't know just um out of interest of how you guys feel about that sometimes with this disability can also be used in a completely opposite way where instead of being omitted it's used kind of for political gain but not in a way that actually has disability at heart more in sort of can we score political points by showing that someone is being ableist. Was there tinkly piano music underneath it? <laughs> <laughs> it was um it was a picture, not a video, but I, I imagine if they'd done a video it would it would have had some sort of sad, sad piano on it. But um I just yeah, it's it's really interesting. And again, surprisingly, it comes back to the lack of integration throughout because you kind of end up seeing people as sort of opportunities to highlight something without actually engaging with the whole thing in all its moving parts yeah yeah well i guess we should uh start racking up uh wrapping yeah, up that was great it's just been nearly an hour, been yeah, an hour know, exactly. so we make we could have ended up doing the four hour one <laughs> <laughs> yeah really so tried. We'll take a 15 minute break everyone and then we'll come back for hour two <laughs> <laughs> uh thank you so much chris for doing this it's been absolutely fascinating and yeah. i think we've been talking about getting you on since pretty much the beginning so great has finally happened well i'm, I'm genuinely honored it's been a real pleasure oh, it's, um, it's our pleasure we are yeah. you guys <laughs> honestly um just found that sort of so interesting throughout um and i think it's nice to have a guest on who's kind of someone we've interacted with from the beginning so it shows that you know we still um still have the similar people in our circle we haven't we haven't changed yeah you haven't forgotten us podcasting with the stars you haven't forgotten us me and jack would like to sort of thanks for your support at the beginning because i remember oh, you yeah, being definitely. Quite a big, uh, big advocate mm -hmm. for the podcast when we first started and that's um kind of enabled us to have quite a crazy podcast adventure it's been quite a while it's been like three years now really so i think so yeah yeah, um, but, but, to be fair, one of those years, nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're very inconsistent. We're very inconsistent. But um, no, it's just it's just build, building the legend for your comeback series. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's going to sort of cause a Twitter meltdown when we mention that we've got Chris Hatton, yeah. the, the, the Statman, the Statman, stat Chris. Man, hashtag Statman, Chris. <laughs> Um, hope that doesn't yeah. come back to like haunt you in any kind of way and everyone starts calling you yeah. that but at the same time i kind of hope it does people people have already called me that oh really no nah! <laughs>
<laughs> not often though. You just, you just burn you can, Jack's bubble. You can, Furious. You can make it popular. <laughs> we'll try. We'll try. Oh, um, great. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, great. Um, thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Fuck. What an interview. That was a an absolute a classic. A cracking listen. Is that what yeah. you describe it as? Um, I would say it was a uh, 10 out of 10 would listen again. Cracking listen. Um, huge thank you to uh, Scat, uh, Statman Chris. <laughs> Not Scatman John. Statman Chris uh, for coming on and for just being a supporter of the podcast in general pretty much from the beginning so it was really cool to finally yeah. get to actually chat with you so thanks so much uh yeah for coming on um, um chris has a twitter but it's currently not very active but he does still occasionally post stuff to his blog um links yeah. to his blog sorry um he's described it as dormant so it's not you can still access all his previous yeah. tweets as well and what is that twitter tom that twitter is Chris Hatton, C E D R, but it's with a H. What do you mean it's with a H? Because <laughs> we did this, we tried to do this earlier, and I accidentally um, didn't, for some reason, made a big deal out of there being a H. I just didn't expect there to be a H in Chris, which I don't know that's why. How you spell Chris, that's how you spell isn't Chris. it? Um, K R I S. Yeah, but it's Chris C H R I S. And then it's C E D R at the end of the app. But I and think can you open up his blog it. on there and see what the blog address is? If we all, because not everyone yeah. uses Twitter. We talk about it all the time, but not everyone uses it. Yeah. Um, the blog is Chris Hatton's blog, and it's at chrishatton.blogspot.com. Excellent. Um, and you'll know you're at the right one because it will be stuff. Yeah. As soon as you see some stats from Statman Chris, yeah. you'll be ready. Um, just before we go, I'm thinking we should probably plug our own yeah, Twitter as well. Yeah, we should. Yeah, push for a thousand yep. followers. Well, we haven't quite made it yet, well. as of recording. Who knows? Three, two weeks' time. Who knows what could happen? Um, what, is it, what is our podcast at? It's yeah, at know. Challenging Pod. With an H. H. Yeah. Um, email is and Challenging Behaviors Podcast at gmail.com it's a long one get in contact if you would like to be a part of the pod we've got a few yeah. topics we actually want to discuss but don't have guests yet so if you know of anyone or are someone who would like to discuss it please yeah. let us so know so we have intersectionality with race Brexit remember that thing uh, yeah. everyday ableism banging yeah we're going to get down and nasty yeah. All the classics. Great. Um, oh, yeah. Like, subscribe, yeah. review. Yeah. Give us a good review. All that business. Um, thank you very much, Chris, for coming on. We had a great time and found it super, super interesting. We've been talking about it since how yeah. much fun it was. Tom, say something cool. Uh, Chris Hatton. Cool. With an H. <laughs> With an H. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.